So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker to kick us off. I can think of no better speaker to do that than Dr. Um, Bender Ignacio. Uh, Dr. Ignacio, Bender Ignacio is at the Fred Hutchinson in Seattle, uh, where she focuses on uh, uh, treatment and prevention of a variety of infectious diseases, including HIV AIDS and COVID-19. She's actually the medical director of the Fred Hutchinson COVID-19 Clinical Research Center. In recent years, she's done really important work on the intersection between HIV and COVID, and she's going to share her thoughts on the clinical relationship between HIV and COVID-19 in our um, kickoff lecture. So over to you, Dr. Bender Ignacy. Thank you so much for that introduction, Raj. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. These are my disclosures and learning objectives for today. So we'll um, first describe the impact of COVID-19 among people with HIV and the importance of vaccination and prevention um, in people with HIV. And then we'll talk just very briefly about treatment and prevention modalities. Um, most of those will be addressed more in detail by later speakers and in the cases. So just to start into epidemiology of COVID um, among people with HIV. So um, the first question to ask is whether or not people with HIV are at higher risk of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we have a little bit of conflicting information with regards to this. Um, many studies suggest that people with HIV are more likely to test positive for COVID. Um, here's just some data from the Max and Wise cohort. Um, I think my main take home is that when I look at um, this from across the globe, I think what we're seeing is the differential of who's living with HIV in different places. And probably uh, the recurring theme is structural factors, um, social marginalization that makes some people at risk of, um, of uh, testing positive for, for COVID, and those are likely heterogeneous throughout the United States and throughout the world. Um, as I said, it's, it's fairly heterogeneous. We have um, uh, from another cohort here in the United States that compares people with and without HIV, showing that in all of these different cohorts, um, this is, is early on in um, 2020, that there was no difference in this cohort among people with and without HIV and their risk of testing positive. Again, this is not getting ill, um, but testing positive for COVID. In a study that I did with uh, colleagues at Scenix, which is the um, uh, multi-center cohort of people with the HIV in the United States, what we really found was that um, who you are and where you live is the most important factor in whether or not one was diagnosed with COVID. Um, so if we see here in the, the upper left-hand corner, um, we weren't allowed to, to show the specific geographic locations um, due to regulatory concerns, but we can see that um, people living in um, this site in the United States up here um, were at much higher risk of acquiring COVID over 2020 um, than people living in these um, um, other sites over here. So again, the geography um, by race and ethnicity, so um, people who uh, self-reported that they were um, Hispanic or non-Hispanic Black both had much higher um, uh, incidence of COVID-19 diagnosis than people who reported that they were non-Hispanic white or um, other or mixed, um, mixed race and ethnicity. When we looked by CD4 count, um, we didn't really see very many differences. And so again, this is probably related to factors of exposure more than um, immunologic uh, uh, susceptibility in terms of who is diagnosed with COVID. Among the Kaiser Permanente system, uh, they found that in a pretty healthy population that they take care of um, a two-fold risk of COVID and COVID hospitalization, both among people with HIV compared to um, the remainder of their population. And our findings um, about race and ethnicity being 
uh, increased risk for being diagnosed with COVID were also replicated um, by the N3C cohort. Um, and, and again, they also found that um, people who identified as Black or Latinx were more likely to test positive for COVID. Just a note again from, um, this is sort of 2020 into 2021, um, from the Reprieve study, which is part of um, ACTG, uh, that there's a really high rate of people having asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection and smaller rate of um, symptomatic uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, and this was done uh, via a combination of um, collecting clinical data as well as um, antibody testing among people in this, in this research cohort. So I really wanted to spend a little bit of time emphasizing um, that the risk factors for being diagnosed with COVID and the risk factors from becoming sick or having uh, high severity outcomes from COVID are not the same. Um, this is again from the same work that um, I conducted with the Scenics cohort. Um, and what we attempted to look at were factors that um, increase someone's risk of exposure and then factors that increase someone's risk of, um, of becoming very ill. And here we see that we are able to capture a few things like age and race and ethnicity and HIV specific factors. But we have to remember that it, we, there are a lot of unmeasured factors. And some of the biggest ones among people with HIV is that they face racism and stigma and experience of their HIV epidemic and socioeconomic factors. And these are probably what really drive whether or not someone is exposed to and becomes um, infected with COVID-19. Now switching to the topic of who is likely to become hospitalized or die um, among people with HIV. When we look at people with HIV compared to people without HIV, overall across many studies in, um, in the world from various different geographies, we see that the risk of dying is about twofold um, compared to people without HIV. And why is it that we think that people with HIV might be at higher risk um, for COVID-19 um, severe outcomes? So the first ones are maybe a little bit more obvious um, and that would be immunodeficiency. Um, so people with advanced HIV um, or untreated HIV, um, we know that uh, other immunocompromised populations such as people with organ transplants or receiving immunomodulators are at higher risk um, for COVID severity. And additionally, um, many people with HIV, including people who have a good CD4 count and take um, their ART regularly, have residual inflammation as well as immune exhaustion um, and, and may just not have the same ability to uh, respond to new um, infections, even despite um, good CD4 reconstitution. And this is no different from how we think of many other comorbidities among people with HIV. And then in the non sort of immune category, we know that people with HIV have high rates of metabolic comorbidities uh, out of disproportion or disproportion to their age and, and other um, factors that, that may be risk factors. So metabolic comorbidities, including kidney disease are some of the strongest risk factors for COVID severity. And then as um, we can't stress enough, social determinants of health. So people who belong to marginalized ethnic and racial minorities um, people with social marginalization for socioeconomic factors, um, homelessness, um, uh, for example, um, these all increase people's risk of um, both acquiring um, uh, COVID-19 and potentially having severe outcomes. So among our study um, with Scenics, what we um, found was um, people uh, with all of these factors were at higher risk of becoming hospitalized with COVID. Um, so we looked at age, we looked at race and ethnicity, 
Here we see, we did some careful work looking at different thresholds of CD4 count. And um, even though I think we often think of people with a CD4 count below 200 as being those that have the highest risk of severe outcomes, what we see um, in our um, uh, cohort, again, this multi-site cohort in the United States is that the risk among people whose current CD4 count being 350 or 200 is about the same risk. So I'm really encouraging people to think about um, those that have sort of that moderate CD4 count um, between 200 and 350 as still being as, as high of risk as people with a CD4 count below 200. And then importantly, also people whose lowest reported or nadir CD4 count um, was below 200 um, are still also at elevated risk. And this is important because we take care of many patients who have a current strong CD4 count, but have a history of having a low CD4 count or an AIDS diagnosis. Um, we also identified a few really easy to use um, clinical uh, uh, risk calculators that show um, increased risk for COVID hospitalization. And um, those are the ASCVD risk score, which many of us use anyways with our patients, um, and the FIB4 score, um, which is really um, used for people to evaluate liver fibrosis. Um, but we can use these calculators even in people without hepatitis C. Um, uh, we use this across our entire cohort and we showed that um, using the sort of standard threshold for um, uh, liver inflammation or the ASCVD risk score for each 10% increase, we saw market increases in hospitalization. So these are tools that we all have access to, free online calculators that we can use to have conversations with our patients about their risk or make treatment decisions as well. So I just wanted to focus a little bit about the aggregate um, data between CD4 and viral load. So um, across cohorts, there was a clear trend towards increased severe outcomes with a low CD4. Um, the Xenix cohort suggested a CD4 count of 350 is the threshold for um, severity. Others haven't seen that effect until um, uh, 200, but um, some cohorts uh, were conflicted by uh, confounding by test date, meaning people who check the CD4 count um, after someone was hospitalized for SARS-CoV-2 um, were, uh, you know, we know that people have lymphopenia when they have severe COVID. And so there is some confounding by the test state there. Um, and, and so I think that really this um, higher threshold uh, as measured prior to uh, the onset of SARS-CoV-2 infection is really important to, to take home and not just the people that, that have a CD4 count below 200. Um, most of these data sets really didn't have enough um, persons who are not on HAV um, because these data sets are really predominantly people in care. Um, and so we really don't have enough data to say whether having an uncontrolled viral load um, is a risk factor for COVID severity, although I would, um, would think that the small amount of data um, that exists would show that there is at least a trend towards that. Um, when we look at other um, factors overall, again, people with HIV have an increased risk of dying from COVID-19. The degree of risk is different depending on the study. Um, and among people with HIV, the standard risk factors apart from um, CD4 count and viral load are also very important. Um, so that's something I continue to, to think about and talk about. Um, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, being male, um, over the age of 60 or just increasing age in general were uh, each strongly associated with increased risk of death, again, regardless of, of CD4 count and viral load. I wanna talk about long COVID for just a moment. Um, there are emerging bits of data uh, that show uh, that 
it seems that people who have HIV have an increased risk of, um, of PASC or post-acute sequela of COVID. I apologize for the typo in the middle of the slide. Um, in this um, cohort from Italy, the severity of COVID um, pre predicted PASC, and I think that's certainly true as we see. Um, uh, but in another study, um, which I think was really elegantly done and is not yet um, uh, peer-reviewed, peer but um, showed that HIV uh, infection was strongly associated with PASC and that when they looked at who among those with HIV were at risk of having PASC, they showed that people who had immune exhaustion, so that's uh, PD-1 expression on their T cells, um, that was predictive of PASC. So we know that many people with HIV have more exhausted T cells um, and they were able to predict that based on, on their lab work as well as those who had high levels of inflammatory markers at the time of diagnosis. So moving on to COVID prevention among our patients with HIV. So I'm going to give just a brief overview first of um, inclusion among people with HIV in some of the big uh, COVID-19 vaccine studies. So in the Pfizer and Moderna studies, they each had about 200 people with HIV in those studies. Um, all of these major studies really only included people with HIV who were on ART, had a, um, at least a history of a suppressed viral load and a CD4 count above 200. So it's sort of a recurring theme we'll talk about. It's we don't have as much data on people with low CD4 counts or not on ART in terms of how generalizable vaccine protection is for these people, again, because they were uh, predominantly excluded from the big phase three studies. But overall, we have um, hundreds of people in these original registration trials. And then I think the trial that um, really uh, uh, excelled at recruiting people with HIV was uh, the um, uh, Janssen or Johnson Johnson vaccine trial in South Africa that had more than 1,200 people um, with HIV. Um, although none of these studies really had um, enough separate outcomes to be able to look at efficacy. Um, uh, separately for people with, with HIV other than the, the Sisanke study in South Africa. We are, however, able to look at as a proxy for um, uh, vaccine efficacy in some ways, um, COVID, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibody responses. So here's just some nice graphs showing that compared to people um, who've never been exposed or affected um, by, by COVID, um, people who without HIV who are vaccinated, people with HIV who are vaccinated um, versus people who um, with and without HIV who had had um, infection. So we see that people who are vaccinated, um, you know, some people with HIV have a lower vaccine response rate, but overall fairly similar to people without HIV. Um, there was a trend towards a lower neutralization response um, in some studies, and um, the study out of UCSF by Spinelli et al. showed that people with lower CD4 counts um, certainly had a, a lower chance of producing neutralizing antibodies. This is some really beautiful um, data from the CIVITS cohort, which is a multi-site um, cohort in North America. Um, uh, this is a little bit of a time series. It may be difficult to look at, but essentially they, they looked at um, time stratified uh, by approvals of, uh, or not, excuse me, not approvals, but when people um, would have been fully vaccinated if they received um, uh, different uh, vaccine series. And we can see that 
prior to boosters being recommended for people with HIV um, and overall in the general population and sort of during the Delta wave, we see this uh, dissociation between um, people with and without HIV in terms of the vaccine efficacy. And then once um, boosters begin um, and the three dose series is recommended that the vaccine responses are much more similar. Um, as seen in a, in a um, cumulative incidence graph, we can see overall that um, people with HIV, which is the, the blue line, had a higher incidence of breakthrough infections than people without HIV, but not too dissimilar. Um, and then when stratified by CD4 count, we see a nice trend. So the highest risk is in people with a CD4 count below 200, followed by those with middle CD and CD4 counts, and sort of a similarity between people with a CD4 count above 350, above 500, um, although the risk is still lower um, in people without HIV than those with. Just a little bit more data about um, antibody responses, again, comparing people with and without HIV, not too different um, um, between, between these groups. So what does this leave us in terms of what our vaccine recommendations are? This is just a snippet from the table that um, HIVMA uh, keeps uh, updated, it keeps maintained. Um, and uh, so this is a great reference uh, to look for what the up-to-date recommendations is or recommendations are. Um, this is a composite of what's uh, approved and what the CDC has recommended and then translated directly into recommendations for our populations with HIV. So at present, um, this is a snippet of the table just showing for people with the CD4 count below 200 or not suppressed, um, that it's recommended that people receive a three-dose primary series of either Pfizer or Moderna, um, or with the J&J &J vaccine that they receive a two-dose primary series. And then again, everyone eligible for boosters, whether that's one booster or two boosters, um, receive um, those following completion of the primary series. At present, two different two boosters are recommended for anybody over the age of 50 or with immunocompromised. So that would be people uh, with a CD4 count below 200 um, or, um, uh, or not suppressed on ART. I think given the data that I just showed, one could make the recommendation um, to consider a three-dose series or a booster for people um, with a CD4 count below 350, um, but I think we'll be sort of iterating uh, these recommendations as we go along. So in summary about vaccines, um, the vaccine efficacy is likely slightly lower in people with HIV overall. Um, but is fairly maintained among people with high CD4 counts um, and, is, and drops um, quite a bit in people with low CD4 counts. Vaccine, vaccination is recommended for all people with HIV um, and there are no safety concerns that are specific for people with HIV, even though those primary um, studies may not have included enough uh, people with HIV to stratify the efficacy results. We certainly have enough safety data, both from the phase three trials and from um, experience now vaccinating millions of people with HIV around the world. Um, and again, just keep in mind that people with a CD4 count uh, below 500 and definitely below 350 may have a, a weaker response to vaccination. And so um, these are populations for which we should strongly consider boosting. For those patients that we take care of that are at the highest risk, so people with a CD4 count below um, 200 or not um, on um, ART or those that have sort of clinical uh, AIDS-defining illnesses, 
Um, they do meet criteria to receive uh, COVID-19 PrEP. I think this is a, a concept that we're really familiar with as HIV providers. Um, as PrEP, it's a little bit of a new, uh, I think a new uh, idea for uh, other uh, providers who may be not uh, uh, PrEP or HIV providers, but um, there are many different uh, immunologic criteria for people receiving um, tixagevimab and silgavimab, uh, which is the com com uh, combination known as Evisheld. Um, uh, but um, among specifically people with HIV, we think about those that are at the highest immunologic risk. And, and if we think that they may not respond to vaccines, um, we have this as a tool. Um, it's now authorized to be given every six months um, uh, at, the, at the present time. And that was a, a recent addition was uh, the recommendation for repeat dosing among immuno immunologically fragile populations. I just wanted to, to spend a minute talking about how the COVID pandemic has affected the way that we care for people with HIV and um, our thoughts about HIV incidents. So it seems as though by looking at the data, it might look like HIV incidence is stable or decreasing, but what we really think is that we're seeing um, less people testing. Uh, there's actually less tests being conducted, and so not necessarily that there's less incidence of HIV, but um, uh, less detection of HIV. Um, some really interesting modeling has been done that essentially varies um, behavior change in patients as well as um, uh, behavior uh, change in service uh, allocation and, and availability of service for HIV detection and treatment. And essentially shows that with care interruptions without any behavior change, which is probably the state that we're in right now, um, we might be able, we might see as much as an 11% increase um, in HIV incidence um, over one year or 2%, 2.6% um, over five years. So it's really important to think about how access um, has, has affected our, um, our population. Um, for those that are interested in um, some innovations during the COVID-19 pandemic, this is a white paper by um, HIVMA and the IDSA um, that has talked about ways that we can improve access and improve the care delivery to our patients um, and has been part of our efforts um, to uh, work with um, uh, uh, the, you know, the federal authorities about trying to um, increase telemedicine access and some of these other benefits to patients um, that have been, uh, been extended during the pandemic. And then lastly, um, it's important to talk about the role of immunosuppression and, and the um, arrival of new SARS-CoV-2 variants. So we think that it is most likely that both beta and Omicron variants arose in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's not quite clear whether Omicron arose in Botswana or, or South Africa, um, but it likely because it was so close to um, uh, the ancestral strain uh, and it's very clear that it did not arise from um, the beta or the delta strains um, that this is probably arose in a single individual who had um, uh, likely immunosuppression and had constant replication of the virus over months and months and months. And we remember, when we remember um, who is most um, affected by immunosuppression globally, that's our patients with HIV, and most of the people who in the world would be considered to be immunocompromised are people with HIV focused in Sub-Saharan Africa, and, um, and the population that's not receiving ART and the population that are not receiving COVID um, uh, interruptions is sort of uh, ripe for um, uh, having persistent infection and therefore uh, at risk for um, 
uh, development of new variants. And so vaccine equity globally is not just about preventing death, um, but it's also about um, helping maintain global control um, of, of the virus in terms of, you know, at this point in time, obviously, um, the virus will become endemic, but we can prevent uh, development of new of new variants. I'll spend the, the last few minutes of my talk just speaking about treatment, um, specifically for people with HIV. So who should we treat um, with, among our patients with HIV? So as I've mentioned a number of times in this talk, it's really important not to just consider our immunologic and, um, and treatment risk factors among our patients, but to really consider all risk factors, including age and medical comorbidities and dis disease stage. I can't say enough that um, I have talked to other providers and other patients who say, oh, well, you know, this person's um, taking their ART and their CD4 count is great. So I'm not sure that, that we need to worry about treating them. Um, but we have to remember that maybe that same person is 54 years old and they have chronic kidney disease and they have diabetes um, and they're slightly um, overweight. And so all of those things add up. And, and so again, treating the whole person, thinking about the whole person, um, we have to remember that some of those risk factors are just as, as important or maybe more important in who will go on to get severe disease. Um, importantly, um, for people with HIV, there is no differential recommendation for treatment modality. So whatever you would choose for the general population um, should be chosen as treatment um, uh, for people with HIV, NIH guidelines for disease stage and the EUA approved agents. Um, so uh, the, the guidelines on um, the NIH website and IDSA can be used um, overall and applied to people with and without HIV. It's also important to remember that IDSA has uh, a worksheet or a, a page that can help um, provide uh, recommendations on the use of nermatrovir, ritonavir, uh, also known as Paxlovid, for people receiving HIV and hep C protease inhibitors. And um, the overall uh, take-home point is to continue ART or continue a hep C protease inhibitor without interruption. It's okay to, um, to use both at the same time, even if it means doubling up on the ritonavir component. I wanted to just touch um, on a couple of other um, thoughts that people have had about benefit of antiretroviral therapy specifically um, for COVID-19 treatment. And so early on in the pandemic, I think many of us remember when lopinavir ritonavir was being uh, trialed as a, a COVID-19 um, treatment in um, people without HIV, um, tenofovir was being considered or ART switch regimens. Um, there was some observational data from Spain that um, hinted that maybe um, uh, tenofovir alafenamide or tenofovir um, uh, disaproxyl fumarate compared to other um, backbones uh, maybe had a, a protective effect, but um, there was a lot of confounding by uh, indication, and, and I think these observational studies showing that, for example, people who were receiving one drug versus the other might be more likely to have um, comorbidities such as chronic kidney disease, which increased risk of, um, of COVID-19 severity. So with all of this data put together, I think the take-home point is don't switch somebody's antiretroviral therapy just to prevent um, SARS-CoV-2 infection or prevent COVID severity. Um, patients should be maintained on their usual ART, any regimen um, that is uh, uh, suppressive for them and that is appropriate for them to take otherwise should really be the focus. And then for people who are hospitalized with COVID-19, 
Um, for the most part, again, we're continuing antiretroviral therapy about, without change. There may be some instances due to lack of um, PO access or other things that maybe people have, um, you know, would consider um, something uh, different uh, when someone's severely ill, you know, adjustments for renal function, for example, but not specifically based on someone having COVID-19. And for our patients that are not yet on ART, we don't have clear guidance about this, but I think the general recommendation by experts is that we should consider this similar to other opportunistic infection management, um, meaning that if someone who is ART naive or not currently on ART is hospitalized for COVID, wait until their lung function and the overall uh, disease uh, stabilizes a little bit, and then make sure to initiate antiretroviral therapy prior to discharging this person home. Um, this is really the best way to, um, uh, as we know, to get people started on ART is to make sure that they, they leave the hospital with that first month supply and a follow-up appointment. So um, there really aren't concerns, again, other than if one has to um, modify the regimen due to, due to clinical severity, or for example, protease inhibitor with dexamethasone, um, please start those, those uh, people on antiretroviral therapy before they leave the hospital. So, I wanted to just uh, kind of summarize what we talked about in terms of risks and, and treatment options and ask the question of which of these four patients should be treated um, with anti-SARS-CoV-2 therapies if prevent, presenting with mild symptoms. So these are outpatients, mild to moderate illness, for example. We have a 67-year-old who's vaccinated, virologically suppressed, has a moderately uh, good CD4 count, stage three chronic kidney disease and, cardi and um, congestive heart failure. We have a 47-year-old who's and vaccinated, um, has a lowish CD4 count, but is virologically suppressed and has stage uh, two kidney disease. A 41-year-old who's vaccinated with a recent um, diagnosis of HIV, they're ART naive and have a very low CD4 count. And then an extremely healthy, well-controlled, uh, suppressed um, uh, person um, uh, who is currently pregnant. So I don't have this up as an audience um, response poll. Um, because the answer is that all four of these should be considered for treatment. I listed the NIH um, tier uh, criteria here. Again, um, each of these uh, patients meets treatment criteria for a variety of different reasons. Only patient C um, meets criteria based on advanced immunosuppression related to their HIV specifically, um, but the first two for their age or metabolic comorbidities. Um, the second one, of course, is unvaccinated, so is at higher immunologic risk. And the fourth patient is pregnant and so also is, um, is in a priority population. So in summary, it's important to address vaccine hesitancy and access for our patient population, um, provide a three-dose primary series of vaccines for people who have a CD4 count below 200 or who are unsuppressed, boost everyone who is eligible, provide um, COVID-19 prep with tixagevimab and silgavimab for people with advanced immunosuppression, um, and then remember that most people with HIV's main COVID-19 risks are, are more likely to be metabolic and cardiovascular and age. Um, so please address that with counseling and prioritize folks for treatment that are eligible. And then we need to really focus on access to COVID-19 and HIV care um, to, to undo some of the overlapping um, uh, effects on marginalized populations. Here's just a, a page of resources that I mentioned earlier. 
Um, and then I wanted to give acknowledgments to, um, to many of my colleagues and especially really um, I've learned so much from our community advisory board at UW Positive Research, many of whom who lived through the tough part of the AIDS um, uh, pandemic uh, 30 and 40 years ago and have really taught me about uh, the important things to keep in mind when taking care of people who are living through their second pandemic. So thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful presentation. I'll um, invite um, the attendees to please put their comments and or questions into the Q&A box and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, I have a, a number of questions that I um, um, was wondering about as you were speaking and I know others um, have started putting questions in and we'll try to get to um, all of them. Um, the finding that you showed us that people who have HIV who have a CD4 count less than 350 and especially less than 200 but in less than 350 had more severe outcomes was really intriguing to me. Do you have any um, ideas as to why that might be? Um, we know that people with low CD4 counts have um, residual inflammation. Is, is that why you think that's going on or any speculation as to why you found that effect? I think that might be uh, a good part of it. Um, one of the points I didn't highlight too much was the CD4, CD8 ratio. It's something that I think about a lot as someone who focuses on um, inflammation. And um, so we often look at the CD4 count. Uh, the part of that we often don't think about is having an elevated CD8 count. Um, so someone who has an elevated CD8 count is continuing to have immune activation either directed at HIV, at hep C, um, at CMV, uh, for example. And so um, people who have a, a decent CD4 count but still have their CD8s turned on are um, probably someone who's more likely to have an exhausted immune system. And maybe I'll just pick up, somebody asked about what is immune exhaustion um, as well. So it's a good time to answer that. Um, I think about it as a, as a non-basic uh, science immunologist. Uh, I think about immune exhaustion as if you were running on a treadmill, um, for the distance of a marathon and somebody walked up to you and asked you to sprint, what is your ability to just turn on a full on sprint in the middle of running a slow paced marathon on that treadmill? Probably not as much as if somebody had caught you, you know, walking down the street very casually and asked you to sprint a block. So I think of immune exhaustion is that way. So if someone is sort of continuing to respond to other stimuli over and over and over, um, and that can be shown on CD4 T cells with that, that PD-1 expression, that's a cell surface marker that sort of says, hi, I'm here running on a treadmill, I'm really, really tired. Um, those are the folks that if you say, okay, now jump, go fight SARS-CoV-2, um, those are folks that probably aren't able to do that because they've been running on a treadmill for a long time. That's a great answer and a great analogy, which I'm going to remember. Um, uh, I can comment here that um, the AIDS Clinical Trials Group did a study where they looked at PD-1, the marker that um, one of the attendees is interested in, in people with HIV. And it turns out those people who started off with lower CD4 counts with more immune exhaustion at the beginning continued to have higher levels of PD-1, um, even when they were on ART for years and years and years. So there was some aspect of um, that exhausted immune system that persisted. And I, I bet it correlates with um, some of those individuals um, that we heard about whose CD4 count is less than 350. I think that's a really viable hypothesis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, we also showed, um, again, I didn't highlight too much, but part of the power of the CNX data uh, as compared to some of our other uh, kind of clinical care databases is that we have someone's 
lowest recorded CD4 count. We often talk about that as a CD4 nader. We didn't call it a CD4 nader because we don't know for sure that that was that person's lowest CD4 count. It's the lowest CD4 count we know about since they've been in clinical care um, at one of the scenic sites. But um, uh, having a CD4 nader below 200 was also predictive of, um, of increased risk of severity even among people who currently had a, a nice high CD4 count. So again, it's that, as, as you were talking about Raj, people who had um, sort of that original immunologic hit and probably have uh, an exhausted immune system that um, would have a harder time responding to, um, to uh, SARS-CoV-2 or really any new infection. Yeah, I've been following it almost like a legacy effect and I agree with you. One other finding that you showed us that I wanted to pick up on briefly is the um, ASCBD risk score. We've gotten used to, as you said, um, looking at that when we're prescribing statins and trying to do cardiovascular prevention. Um, one question that Dr. Kim, who's joining shortly, um, has engaged in discussions around is the role of statins and whether those might be protective uh, in people with uh, COVID. Um, did you look at statins in your people with HIV? And was there any, if so, was there any association with either a protective or neutral effect of, of statins? That's a great question. We didn't look at it specifically in our data set um, in part because um, uh, we looked at data from 2020 and uh, it was a little bit less reliable in terms of current refills compared to other years of Scenix data. Um, in terms of what people were currently taking. Uh, a number of people have looked at uh, whether statins are protective in the general population, and it doesn't seem to be. Um, I haven't seen, I, I know that there are some clinical trials looking at this. I think part of the issue in looking at whether statins are protective is that it, the confounding by indication is very complicated. So it's very hard, even when controlling for other factors, to look at who's taking a statin um, at baseline um, and whether or not those people are different they certainly are different in many different ways from other people, even if it's just in their care engagement uh, with all other things being equal. Um, and so, you know, I think there's there's a lot of thought going into whether or not statins could be helpful in either acute or um, post-acute COVID, um, but we haven't really clearly seen, seen benefit of that. As a matter of fact, any of the studies I've seen, and, and it's possible there's new data I've missed, any of the studies I've seen have not shown a protective effect. Great. So now let's shift to treatment. There's a number of questions related to treatment. Um, before we get to the particulars of prescribing Paxlovid and drug interactions, I want to ask you a question about something you began to mention, but I think probably deserves fleshing out. Um, you showed us, and other studies have shown us, that having multiple risk factors um, confer greater risk for se severest COVID. So there's their HIV, but, but there's also their diabetes, their chronic kidney disease. Um, I will reflect on a patient that I prescribed uh, medications for a few days ago who was in his mid-50s with COVID, um, he has HIV, his nadir CD4 count was high, his current CD4 count was high. And he was originally on the fence about prescribing and receiving Paxlovid, but then we also um, discussed his diabetes, which was poorly controlled. And so ultimately we, we chose to, to treat his um, COVID with Paxlovid because he had not just one, but multiple risk factors. Wondered what you thought about that and, and just really um, to drive home that message that you were uh, putting out there in terms of how we assess our patients with HIV. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's shared decision making. I think right now with the availability of Paxlovid, at least domestically in most pharmacies, there's very little downside. I think, um, you know, there's been quite a lot of media buzz about um, rebound. And I, I know that some of the other speakers will talk about that later. As far as we've seen that hasn't rebound hasn't been harmful or dangerous. It's maybe more inconvenient. 
Um, but it's, but it is regardless of rebound, you know, Paxlovid keeps people out of the hospital. And so I think for people with multiple risk factors, it still makes sense. Um, and, and I, and I use that in shared decision-making is sort of talking with people about all of their risk factors together. Great. Maybe getting down to the particulars of prescribing Paxlovid and drug interactions. If a patient is on um, ritonavir for their HIV, can you just um, remind um, the group one more time about how we handle that with the ritonavir that's in Paxlovid? Yeah, great question. So um, again, I had in the slides, there's a link to the to the um, uh, little worksheet about that, that the HIVMA and IDSA have produced. Um, but the answer is do not change somebody's ART. So whether or not they're on uh, cobisostat or ritonavir, just continue giving all of them. Um, one might think, so, so Paxlovid has 100 milligrams of ritonavir twice daily. Um, so that's the same as if they were receiving uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, for example. Um, uh, so they'd be getting 300 milligrams daily if they're getting, for example, once daily boosted darunavir um, and about the equivalent of that with cobisostat. Um, is that too much? Um, no, uh, we, we actually uh, probably mainly before I started practicing HIV medicine, uh, when ritonavir was being considered on its own as an antiretroviral therapy, people receiving doses much higher than that. The main side effect is um, GI distress or you know, diarrhea or, or stomach upset. And so um, there's no danger to it. Um, it's really uh, you know, potentially just an increase in, in the mild gastrointestinal side effects. And it's thought to be that the process of trying to, you know, decouple the booster or make changes or have somebody hold medications or, you know, break apart their Paxlovid box would uh, increase risk of either um, interfering with their HIV treatment or not getting the correct um, Paxlovid dosing. And so for just the five days that uh, somebody's receiving treatment, it's not that much extra uh, ritonavir and we're encouraging people to just keep on trucking with their HIV treatment and take the Paxlovid and everything will be okay. Um, there are a few exceptions to that in terms of drug-drug interactions. So we have to be careful with statins. We have to be careful for our transplant patients on um, telsinurin inhibitors like tacrolimus, um, but specifically for HIV treatments, um, it's okay to just keep going with both. Great, and, and maybe I'll just add that for statins in particular, I've, um, and most guidelines recommend just having your patient stop the statin for the five days of the Paxlovid plus an additional three days that it takes the uh, kind of the ritonavir and Paxlovid to just wear off on the metabolism. And, yeah. and in most instances, that's that's handleable. The calcineurin inhibitor interaction though is, as you mentioned, a really important one. And that's where yeah. it gets um, into sometimes choosing an alternative because of the, the really right. profound effect of ritonavir. Um, Somebody any, was asking for their um, strategies. Yeah, I was going to say, are there any tools or yeah. any ways that you've um, found particularly helpful for managing these drug interactions? Yeah, so in my accessory brain over here, um, I have downloaded the, the Liverpool drug-drug interaction checker. Many of us are familiar with this uh, to check HIV medications and other medications, but um, the University of Liverpool has made uh, a separate app for COVID-19 uh, drug interactions. So I have it on my phone so that if somebody calls me from clinic and says, you know, should this patient be getting Paxlovid and what, what do you think? I pull out my phone right on the app, I put in Paxlovid or whatever the medication is and you can list their co-medications and check for drug interactions. And um, I think it's a much handier tool than some of the other tools available because it will actually give you instructions on what to do, for example, with the statin or with other medications uh, while, during the course of Paxlovid because it's really tailored to look at drug-drug interactions with, uh, with COVID treatments. 
Great. So now let's shift from treatment to prevention. And I think we have a few more, uh, minutes to really delve into these. If there's any questions we don't get to in the um, in the, this session, we will carry them forward to the round table. And so please do join us for that. And please keep the questions coming. Um, even if we don't get to them, we, we will get to them during the program. Let's go to uh, Tixajiba maps of GovMap, also known as Abishal. Is that really just for people whose CD4 counts less than 200 and high viral load or unsuppressed? And do you give it to your vaccinated and boosted individuals or only those who are unvaccinated? Remind us again about the use of, of Tixajivimab Silgavimab. Yeah, absolutely. So it is for people with either CD4 count below 200 or unsuppressed viral load um, because both of those populations of people, they're often the same people, but not always. We have, you know, I take care of a number of people who've been suppressed for 20 years at this point and still have a CD4 count below 200. The reason to give um, patients COVID prep, um, despite being vaccinated, is that that's the highest risk population for not producing good neutralizing antibody responses to their vaccines. So again, you can use shared decision making. I think um, you know if someone has a low CD4 count but has had um, their three dose primary series, has had two boosters, doesn't have a lot of other metabolic comorbidities, maybe they they do or don't need it. Um, I think you know, one of the hard things about making decisions right now about who should get these medications is that we're not supposed to be checking um, antibody titers because there isn't a clear cutoff um, uh, on the clinically available IgG um, nucleocapsid and spike uh, 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 assays about what the level is uh, that we should be using as, as saying somebody is immunologically at risk for not having responded to their vaccines. Um, so I think, you know, again, use shared decision-making, but, but these, this population, despite being vaccinated, should be considered for um, tixagavimab, silgavimab. And the last question I'll have you um, um, comment on, and then we'll probably come back to it in the round table. And there's also a few questions around uh, emergence of variants and some of the immunology of HIV, COVID that we'll come back to in the round table. But can you just remind us for the three, and someone whose CD4 count is less than 200, you told us that they should get a three-dose primary series. Should they then get two booster doses? Um, um, or what is your comments on the booster doses in someone who um, has gotten the three doses in the primary series if their CD4 counts low? Yeah, that that's the current recommendation. I think as we approach... Um, uh, the fall when we're expecting to have a bivalent vaccine available that uh, attacks both Omicron and uh, the ancestral strain. Um, this idea of uh, sort of original boosters may begin to go away. I, I think our expectation is that people will likely be getting a, a seasonal or annual um, booster um, that may be variant specific. How that exactly looks is, is yet to be seen, but I think we know that, that um, for the FDA, uh, uh, an Omicron specific bivalent booster will be coming in the fall. So I, I think it's important to remember that it's not just sort of one booster ever, or two boosters ever. This is an evolving um, paradigm and the current recommendation is to have received two boosters for people who are um, immunologically at risk. And then, um, you know, that will continue to, to probably evolve into, my guess is a, at least an annual um, vaccine update. Great, and I think this is a topic that's so important that during the roundtable, we'll certainly, I made myself a note to come back to this and we'll, we'll go into it in some more detail. Um, also, the questions that we didn't get to um, 
uh, we will definitely revisit uh, this afternoon or uh, depending on where you are this afternoon uh, later in the session.